Won't you turn in your Bibles quickly to uh, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 13. What I want to do is just very quickly lay the foundation for this weekend and I'm glad I'm teaching to the leadership in this church because how many of you know leadership is not position, it is all about posture and influence. Amen? It's not about your title, it's not about your position, it's about the posture with which you serve and the influence that you have. And uh, I'm so glad we are in a room full of leaders because I want to teach on um, what I believe is the emerging wineskin of how we're going to be doing church in this next season. And uh, the emerging wineskin is not one where we simply add miracles on at the end of a meeting and hope someone gets healed, but actually where a community takes responsibility for the supernatural and see it extend wherever they go. The emerging wineskin is not one where we just work amongst the poor because, well, that's what we do to be nice because we're, we're just nice Christians so we'll help the poor and the broken. No, no, it's central to who we are as community that we stop for the one and we speak up on behalf of those who have no voice. Amen? That we're a people who are together in extending the kingdom. And, and that's really where I want to go this morning, lay a foundation in understanding what it means to be church in a kingdom wineskin. In the past, we've always built church to a particular understanding of ecclesiology that said, the bigger your church, the more influential you are. The truth is that you can have a very big church and have a small missional radius. Or you can have a very small church and a large missional radius. The choice is yours. Now I'd like to believe that we can have a missional radius that's humongous and a church that's humongous in the same place. And I believe that's what God has in store for Jubilee. Uh, You need to know that God is wanting to move you out of the place of being comfortable in community um, at 100, 200 people to much bigger. I'm going to say amen to that myself because I thought that was a good point. Um, if you don't want to say amen, I'll say amen. I'm, I come from a Pentecostal background. We've got to throw in some amen somewhere, right? Thank you. I wish I had an organ in the background. Um, and church is, is church is being done differently. Um, and, and God is moving. It's incredible in the extremes that we see in what we call word and spirit movements. By the way, there is no separation between the word and the spirit. Yeah. Jesus says, my words are spirit and life. There is no difference. So if you're an intellectual and you like scripture and the academia of scripture, you should be a person of the Holy Spirit. Because intellect and encountering the Holy Spirit are not at opposite polar ends. The Holy Spirit is the most intelligent person I know. (laughs) Which is why he says he'll lead you into all truth. Not just biblical truth, all truth. The complicated decision-making process that you need for your business, the Holy Spirit will lead you into all truth. The difficult equations that you're facing in your math studies, the Holy Spirit wants to lead you into all truth. Um, so it's all about understanding who he is 
And uh, I believe God is, is doing an incredible thing in that when you look at a lot of our work, so-called work movements, they are really going for the sense of kingdom breaking out in influence and in, in strategic places of influence in government, in, 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 in science, in medicine, in, in multimedia, in loads of different places. There's the sense in which they're... Um, wanting to get influence so that the kingdom can come into those places and then on the charismatic side or the more Holy Spirit side we've seen people who are understanding that God didn't just want us to have a a, a goosebump because the air conditioning is too cold in a building he wanted us to have an encounter with him where signs, wonders and miracles are the everyday expression Amen and the great joy is for us we don't have to go after one or other extreme. We get to have it all in the kingdom. We get to see kingdom coming through influence as well as the signs and wonders. And so Jesus in the book, uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, is talking to his disciples and he's been telling a story to the crowd about a sower who goes out into a field and sows some seed and then at the night, in the evening an enemy comes in and sows some weeds into that uh, uh, farm or into that piece of ground and uh, he talks about how in the end God is going to gather and separate the, the weeds from uh, the wheat and uh, it's incredible whenever Jesus shares a parable that is hard to understand it's an invitation to engage in mystery it's an invitation for those who are hungry to get something more and so Jesus often would tell the crowd a story that would be hard for them to understand because he was looking for those in the crowd who would be hungry and press into him afterwards and say, please help us understand what you're saying. <laughs> and uh, most Christians sit in meetings and miss the opportunity to engage in mystery because their hearts aren't hungry. <laughs> And so sometimes when God hides things, it's not from you, but it's for you. The Bible says in Proverbs that it's the glory of God to conceal a matter, and it's the glory of kings to search a matter out. Yours is the royal privilege of searching out the hidden things of God. It's why the Bible says in 2 Corinthians, sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 9, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no mind has perceived, what God has prepared for those who love Him. But God has revealed this to us by His Spirit. For who knows the mind of a man except the Spirit? Even so, who knows the mind of God except the Spirit of God? And we have been given the Spirit. That is not of this world, but the Spirit that comes from God, that we might freely understand all things. We get to search out the unsearchable. Isn't that incredible? And so Jesus begins to explain what this parable means. And in uh, Matthew chapter 13, we were picking up from verse 36, he says this, Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him saying, we don't have a cooking clue what you just said. <laughs> Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And he answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed 
who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the close of age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather from out of his kingdom. Notice that the world is his kingdom. All causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into a fire furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. We are living in an incredible season where God is transitioning our understanding from simply building nice churches to being churches who govern on behalf of heaven. The word church is the word ecclesia, which is a term that Jesus borrows from uh, the Roman Empire at the day uh, of the day. And the Roman Empire would take some people, call them out from the Jewish nation, and tell them to rule over that nation and make that nation become a little bit more like Rome. Their job was to Romanize the area they were in. And so when Jesus says, um, I'm going to build my church, he's intentionally using that word for the disciples to understand that their design and their mission is to heavenize the earth. Come on. (laughs) That they're called to govern on behalf of God to release the peace of God, the shalom of heaven, because remember, the government of God is his peace. It means that when God rocks up, everything is as it should be. And peace is an incredible word in that the word shalom does not just simply mean the absence of warfare. Shalom means a whole lot more than that. It literally means that God begins to break out in such a way as that families are restored, health is restored, finance is restored. In fact, the word peace in Jewish understanding is always connected to prosperity. People ask me if I'm a prosperity preacher. Absolutely. (laughs) Because you can't divorce prosperity from peace in the kingdom. God wants us to be a people who understand not that our riches own us, but that we own them, we own our riches as a conduit to extend the kingdom. And so I'm praying for more and more millionaires in our churches. Not because they need to buy another Ferrari, but because they have an opportunity to extend the kingdom. And when peace comes, it changes the landscape and makes it easy and accessible for people to enter into the kingdom. So when your home is a place of peace, when the lost walk in... They get to encounter God. It's incredible when you travel. You get to go to many different places. We've just been in the nation of France with some friends of us. When you walk into their house, there is a government of peace in the house. You feel it. You sense it. It's an atmosphere that releases things in such a way as to bring you into rest and into life. And there's some places where you go where you definitely don't feel peace. (laughs) And you know, often people come into our house and say, we sense the peace of God on your house. That's because we, we, we want the government of God's kingdom to be made manifest in our house. So that when the lost walk in, the first thing they encounter is a sense of peace. And so the kingdom starts at your home, doesn't it? Yes. Um, <laughs> if you can't govern your kingdom, uh, your, your home... Through peace, you're not going to govern your workplace through peace. 
You're not going to govern your sphere of influence. You can want to have as much influence wherever you go, but if it's not centrally based at home, it's not going to happen anywhere else. And uh, this peace means that people look in and say, we want something of the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. Our communities, our church communities, are supposed to look like grace-filled places so that the worst sinner says, I want in. Mm-hmm. Amen? Yeah. That's what kingdom looks like. And so Jesus is moving our understanding into a kingdom wineskin. And he starts off in this particular text talking about the kingdom of God. He's talking, he says, the kingdom of heaven, in verse 24, may be compared to a man who sowed seed in his field. He's wanting us to understand that this is about the domain of God. And many people think that the kingdom of heaven is a detached reality that one day when we die we'll go to. And the problem with that thinking is what it does is it causes us to see God as a detached reality. Because where is God dwelling right now? In his kingdom, in the unseen kingdom. When we should understand the kingdom of heaven as a coexisting reality. So a few moments ago, about an hour ago, or half an hour ago, I forget, we walked into this building, which is a great church building. We walk into this room, which is an average youth building. It's not that bad. And about 20 minutes into the worship, kingdom started being felt. We suddenly became aware that there's another domain breaking in on this one. We suddenly became aware of the presence of God. You know, very often we use the phrase, I'm going to go up to heaven, when we talk about heaven. And it's a very unhelpful phrase, because we kind of think that we leave our body and we, you know, kind of go up somewhere. When I, I don't know if you've ever, you know, in, in our school, uh, we would talk about uh, being in grade one, and then I'd say, oh, I'm going up to grade two. Um, and my classroom was on the, the first floor, or on the ground floor, and when I'd say, I'm going up to grade two, that didn't mean I was going up another level to another classroom, it just meant I was going to the class next door, because that's where the grade two class is. And heaven's exactly like that. We often talk, we use phrases like I'm going up somewhere, when the reality is what is unseen in this room is more real than what is seen. And then we just need to become aware of the classroom that's next door to us. And, and when you begin to understand that, you begin to realize that heaven is a coexisting reality that we get to press into and that we get to live from. You see, uh, and I'm probably going to teach on this tonight, the atmosphere that you are most aware of is the atmosphere you will most reflect. The reality you are most aware of is the reality you will most reflect. And if your internal reality is not the kingdom of God, because where is the kingdom? It's in you. If that's not in you and you're not aware of that, what you will always do is reflect the transient nature of this kingdom called the world and miss out on his kingdom. I don't need to live under the control of demonic presence because I live above the stratosphere and atmosphere of this earth because I'm seated in Christ in heavenly places. So every other controlling power is under my feet. You can say Amen. (laughs) Amen. So the kingdom of God is a coexisting reality. And for the Jew, they would have understood when Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is at hand, what was so outrageous about that message, what was so revolutionary about that message, is what Jesus was saying, is that sinful flesh 
now has access to the holy domain of heaven. That was outrageous for them. Literally, the translation means that the kingdom of God is within arm's reach. Because up until that time, you'll see throughout scripture, they pray, rend the heavens and come down, God. They say, who is holy enough to ascend your hill? Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? And they look around and go, no one, no one can ascend the hill of the Lord. But thank God for Jesus. Because when Jesus comes, the Bible says that the heavens were torn. Luke's Luke's so great he says literally the heavens were torn open so that now there is never any necessity for us to pray a prayer like God give me an open heaven or God I I can't access your presence or Lord I don't know what to do in terms of uh, of ascending the hill of the Lord no 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 I am now fully clothed in Christ and because he has an open heaven I have an open heaven which means there is unhindered access between the realm of God and my living and dwelling on this earth (laughs) shika bazooka I mean, that's good, right? Yeah, yeah. And when you understand that, you realize that everything around you has to change. Because your perspective is not earthbound, your perspective is from heaven. And so the reality of heaven is the reality you release on earth. And so in heaven there's no sickness. There's no poverty, there's no injustice, there's no brokenness, there's no relational discord. That means I get to release that reality first in my family and then wherever we go. Now, when, when you understand that in terms of church, you realize that church is not meant to gather around a fire and sing Kumbaya, my Lord. It's meant to release the dynamic rule and reign of God in every sphere of society. And the problem is for the church in the last season is we've been influenced by unhelpful theology and heresy like Left Behind series and uh, rapture theology that says we're all going to get out of here so it's okay. When Jesus says in this context that the only people who leave the earth are the evil ones. (laughs) Because this whole earth is going to be redeemed and renewed and recreated. And the reason why we've been given stewardship over this earth is to release enough of God and His kingdom on the earth to get those who are lost in. Because when they see heaven, they see a picture of what's coming and they'll want in. That changes the way we do church. Because what we've done is to try and get people into our meetings on a Sunday morning when God's been desiring to get us out of our meetings into the world. Because light belongs in the dark places. That's the foundation of kingdom theology. That we get to take it all back. Um, There was a cartoon that was out a few years ago called Pinky and the Brain. And uh, I used to love it. because uh, Pinky, she said, a brain, so brain, what are we going to do tonight? And he'd say, the same thing we do every night. We're taking over the world. And we're the Pinky and the brain generation. We're taking over the world. Do I believe that the whole earth is going to be redeemed and look like heaven before Jesus comes back? I don't have a cooking clue, but what I do know is I want as much of heaven right now 
as I can so that as many people who do not know him get in. Amen? And so we have to understand that that's the premise from which we build church. That you are a governing entity releasing God's government of peace wherever you go. Jesus says, uh, in, uh, the prophet Isaiah says that upon the, go- upon the shoulders of Jesus will be the government of his peace. Who, who, who are the shoulders of Jesus? His body. It's us. We, we carry the authority to release peace. And the church has been looking for power all this time when you've already got power. Do you know it's the biggest waste of time to pray for something that God's already given you? <laughs> give me more power, give me more power. You have the kingdom of God within you. You have the Holy Spirit within you. You've got all power that you could ever need. You just need to believe it. You change the way you think. Because the entrance point to the kingdom is repentance. And repentance is not remorse over sin. Repentance is changing the way you think in order to change your behavior. And when you change the way you think about the kingdom, you become a miracle working machine. Everything changes. And so the reality of what we need in this hour is not more power. What we need in this season is a greater understanding of the authority that Christ has given to us. Power is the ability to act. Authority is the delegated permission to act. And when you realize that Jesus has given us permission to act, everything changes. You're called to be the head and not the tail. You're not called to be the doormat of society. You're called to be the mind shapers of society. (laughs) This is church in a different level. And so the kingdom of God works like that. And I want to just pull out a few things very quickly. I, I don't have enough time to unpack all of the kingdom. Sometimes when I, I, if I had my way, we'd probably do this over four or five sessions. There's so much to talk about around the kingdom. And because we are rediscovering it, uh, the kingdom, everything is changing in my mind around how I even read the epistles. What we've done is we've read Paul's letters through a pastoral mindset. And so it's reduced us to navel-gazing and introspection. When actually, when you understand Paul through a kingdom mindset, everything changes when you read the epistles. That grace is for empowerment, not just to help you get along day by day. Grace is for overcoming, not just to help you stick it out and grin and bear it. Amen? And when you understand grace through the message of the kingdom that Jesus preaches, everything changes. Because what we've done is we've said, oh, Jesus had a wonderful message on the gospel of the kingdom, and Paul then expounded on that message in some way as if Jesus' message was inferior. No, no, no. Paul simply interpreted what Jesus was really saying. And when you get the lens of the kingdom, you get grace as empowerment much quicker. Grace doesn't then just become a thing that covers your sin. It's, it's, the, it's the frequency, it's the currency through which we extend the kingdom. And so I just want to pack just a few things very quickly. Um, and hopefully I'll be done by 5 plus call so we can do some ministry before lunch. This is going to be a miracle. Mm-hmm. If it's done by 5 plus 12. Um, we've got a believer. Um, one of the first things you have to understand about the kingdom is that this kingdom is expressed through family. 
So Jesus says uh, the, the seed that the farmer is sowing, and, and of course we see that the, fa- the farmer is the father, and notice he owns the whole field. And Jesus says the field is the world. Contrary to popular belief, the devil doesn't own the world. The Bible says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The devil never owned the world. He simply thought he had some authority. But actually it was always God who owned everything. And so the earth, everything, is holy to God. The only thing that is secular and separate from God is sin. Everything else is holy. Work is holy, play is holy, fun is holy. Do you know that your whole life was designed to live in the context of pleasure? The Bible says that God created Eden for mankind, and Eden means pleasure. Our original design was to live in the place of pleasure. It's why John Piper so wonderfully says God is most satisfied in us when we are most... uh, I'm sorry, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. Because to the degree that we enjoy Him and, and, and enjoy pleasure... Some people say to me, do you do that whole Holy Spirit stuff still? Where you get a little bit drunk and happy As much as possible Because to the degree that I'm satisfied in him Is to the degree that I'll bring him glory (laughs) Everything is in him So everything is holy Your work is meant to be fun Some of you are like really? Have you been to my workplace? Depends on your perspective Depends on your perspective Everything's meant, to, everything's meant to live out of the place of pleasure. And the purpose of joy is to sustain you in the context of suffering. <laughs> it's a powerful thing. People say to me, Julian, you, might, you place too much emphasis on joy. It's so emotional. And uh, I had one very lovely guy, he was ever so English, he said, my problem with you, Julian, is that you're placing so much emphasis on joy and too emotional. God's not into that kind of emotion. And I said to him, Sir, the problem with you is you don't understand joy. Joy is not an emotion, it's a fruit. And it's supposed to grow. And if joy doesn't move your face, you've probably got the wrong kind of joy. <laughs> I'll move on quickly. So everything belongs to God, and He is the Father of everything, and we are sons. So this whole thing is a family business. The joy is you don't have to be a slave, you don't have to wait for orders from God, you get to live in the overflow of relationship with Heavenly Papa, because we're extending His kingdom together. And the whole reason that Jesus died, I love that phrase, I think the Arnold Jesus, they said God, uh, Jesus became the son of, Jesus the son of God became the son of man, so that the sons of man could become the sons of God. Come on. I love that. And so we now have entered into Christ, and the same favor that's on him as the son of God is the same favor we get. The same commission that is on Jesus is the same commission we have. If you're looking for your purpose, look to Jesus. Very simple. Do what he did and you'll be fulfilling your purpose and your destiny. It's not complicated. And the reality is that we get to live out of sonship. We get to live out of the radical overflow of deep intimacy with him that propels us into mission so we get to say, I'm about my father's business. This is all relational. (laughs) And the great thing is, my inheritance is secured not depending on what I achieve, but depending on what Jesus already achieved for me, and I'm already an heir and a partaker of that inheritance right now. Man, that should start revival. (laughs) Because if we get this, 
And, and I, I'm getting this more and more. So, you know what, if I don't get any of my prophetic work right today, I don't actually give a continental poop. Because the reality is, I shouldn't probably have said that, sorry. Um, the reality is, I'm a son. And whether you're not impressed with me, whether you're impressed with me or not, actually doesn't matter because I am very impressive to my father. In fact, I'm his favorite. <laughs> and so are you. And so you need to change the stinking thinking that says you're a slave and you have to achieve something for God. When the reality is you're a son, he is well pleased. Jesus did not do a single miracle for God before his baptism. And at his baptism, the father says, I take great pleasure in my son. He takes pleasure in you before you do anything for him. And that's the propelling factor as to why we do stuff with him. Remember, we're not working for God, we're working with Him. My wife's going to unpack a whole lot more around some of this wonderful theme of our adoption and our understanding that we are, we are called into Him. I just want to give you this quick um, um, J.I. Packer quote, just to make you think like I'm a theologian. <laughs> God adopts us out of His free love, not because our character and our record shows us worthy to bear His name, but despite the fact that they show the opposite. We are not fit for a place in God's family, and the idea of His loving and exalting us sinners as He loves and has exalted the Lord Jesus sounds ludicrous and wild. Yet that, and nothing less than that, is what our adoption means. What's true of Jesus is true of you. And God intentionally like a good farmer, takes you out and shows you into the world. Your dwelling place, your workplace, your education, your skin colour, your culture, everything about you has been an intentional part of God's plan for you so that you get to thrive as sons and daughters. It's wonderful. And the kingdom is extended because of that. Not because of what we can do for him and so we must understand that if we're to be church together that we have to understand that our primary function as the called out ones to govern on behalf of the kingdom is first the sons do you know the Holy Spirit never ever empowers us simply to do mission we've heard things like oh if you get filled you've got to go do something with it We've heard teachings on the Holy Spirit's primary job is to give you a mission and to help you fulfill your mission. That's not biblical. The Holy Spirit's primary job is to confirm your sonship. It's why Romans, Hebrews and Ephesians talk about the spirit of adoption that confirms with us that we're the sons of God. The Holy Spirit helps us be more, not do more. Second to the foundation of the kingdom... It's an understanding, like I started off, I I said this point, but I'll just explain a little bit more. It's an understanding that God's original intent is still His intent. That God started in a garden called Eden, 
And it's incredible. We need to study in the book of Genesis and the book of John. The book of John is an allegorical writing of what was happening in the Garden of Eden. So both starts off with, in the beginning, was God, isn't it? Uh, both, uh, and then you see what was lost in the Garden of Eden is restored in the Garden uh, of the crucifixion because uh, the whole scene the whole crucifixion scene happens in a garden and uh, I'll touch on this at some stage it's incredible when you see how everything works so, so for example I'll just give you this one for a freebie in the cool of the day in the evening God would walk with his created beings Adam and Eve in fact the word says in the cool of the day, actually some translations talk about in the cool of the breeze, which is the word ruach, which is where we get the Holy Spirit from. So God is walking in the person of the Spirit with Adam and Eve. And what happens in the, the, the uh, garden with Jesus is that he rocks up in the evening in a room that's situated in this garden and he breathes. On his, he ruachs on his disciples. What was lost in the Garden of Eden gets restored in the Garden at the Crucifixion. Mm-hmm. Incredible. Yeah. And, and, and the Garden of Eden was meant to cover everything. In fact, the Garden of Eden, when you do study, you begin to understand that the Garden of Eden was meant to act as a temple. Uh, you, you see temple language in the Garden of Eden. I don't have time to unpack all of that, simply, except simply to say this, that the same commission that Adam received as a, a gardener in the Garden of Eden is the same commission that the priests received to protect, to guard, and to look after. And in the same way that the priests were anointed, uh, they were anointed to, to guard and to protect the temple. And you see incredible allegory in there. And that temple was meant to cover the whole earth. That, that picture of the garden was meant to cover the whole earth. Jesus said, uh, the Father says to, to, to Adam and Eve, cover the earth. God's original intent is still his intent. He wants to cover the earth with his glory. And you now have become a walking temple, a walking garden. So your sphere of influence is covered with His glory. That's powerful. It's why Jesus talks about your heart being like soil. (laughs) It's because you carry the garden of the kingdom, of the temple in you, so you become the walking revival that the world needs. Stop praying for revival because you're it. You're the answer. And so wherever you go, you get to extend. Your home becomes a garden. It becomes a kingdom that expresses God's love and kindness. Your workplace, your sphere of influence, as you lead through honor, as you lead through the purposes of God, your employees or your people that you work with, your colleagues, suddenly come under your rulership of peace. Because everything's holy. It's awesome. So that when you are shaping some policies, uh, if let's say you're working in the NHS and you need to shape some policies around how we work with pediatrics, you get to shape those policies with some kingdom principles so that when you're working, it creates an atmosphere for people to suddenly say there's something about the way you do things that's different from the way others do things. What is it? And I want to say the increasing difference that we have to bring in the fundamentalist confusion between Muslims and Christians is that we understand the kingdom honor that releases life. Amen? Mm-hmm.
So when we, when we do things, it's completely different. To everything holy. The third thing that you'll notice about this is that the kingdom is expressed in attention. The enemy is real. <laughs> we, we sometimes play, we sometimes, I heard someone say, oh the enemy is a roaring lion but he's lost his teeth. But no, no, if the enemy bites, he bites hard. He, he bites to kill. You know, that's the whole purpose of the enemy. The enemy came to kill, to steal, to destroy. That's what he does. It's who he is. It's his nature. And the enemy sows into the, the, the kingdom the, uh, the sons of evil, as it were. Um, and God's so clever in his wisdom. He says, well, just let them both grow, because at the end, we'll separate them. But there, here's the reality, brothers and sisters, we're in attention. But the joy is that the authority of the enemy has been stripped away. Amen. The Bible says that at the cross, all authority that the enemy had has been stripped away. So he's still powerful. He still has an ability to act, but he no longer has the permission to act. You've been given that permission. And so when you begin to understand that the enemy's influence in your life is only to the degree that you allow him permission, you'll begin to realize that you don't have to accept his lies. And the way the enemy works is on the principle of agreement. The Bible says where two or three agree upon touching anything, it shall be done. And the reality is that that also works in the kingdom of darkness. That where there's an agreement, there's a legal right for the enemy then to begin to operate. And for most of us, we make agreement with the enemy subconsciously by accepting lies and, tr- and, 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 and things that he would say concerning who we are, so that it begins to work itself out in our life. Like, things like, this is my favorite one, I'll just kill a quick holy cow with this one. Well, you know, um, diabetes is in my bloodline. And so, um, I need to just watch out, because diabetes is in my bloodline. My, my granny had it, my great-grandmother had it, and her great-grandmother had it. The reality is, you've got a new bloodline. You've been irrevocably changed. And so what are you going to agree with? The reality of who you now are, or the reality of what you once were? The word for agreement is the word symphoneo in the Bible. It means different sounds coming together to create one beautiful sound. What sound are you agreeing with? Is it the sound of heaven, or the sound of the enemy? Because what you agree with gives permission to work. The greatest place of battle that ever happened was at a place called Golgotha. A hill called Golgotha. And on that hill, Golgotha means the place of the skull. The enemy was stripped of his authority and power. The reality is, brothers and sisters, that the greatest place of spiritual warfare that you will ever endure is not trying to look for the hot spots of the enemy in Solihull. Where X marks the spot and the ley lines come together and there was a sacrifice five years ago. No, no, that's not where you're going to go. The greatest place is in your Golgotha, the place of your skull. (laughs) And until you apply the finished work of the cross to that place, you'll always live under the influence of the enemy. I must press on because I'm already late. Um, So there's a tension. The, the, The other thing I want to say about this kingdom is that it is a supernatural kingdom is that we get to partner with the angelic. (laughs) 
<laughs> Maybe we can help you a little bit because sometimes when we start talking about angels, people start thinking we're going over to the weird side. <laughs> we're talking about angels. How many of you here can recognize something demonic? You walk into a shop, into an atmosphere, you feel something demonic, you watch a movie, you sense something demonic, quickly lift up your hands. Wow. That's pretty much all of you. Okay? How many of you here regularly recognize angels? Put up your hands. There are a lot less hands going up right now. And the reality is that there are more angels than there are demons, which means we should technically be expecting to encounter more angels than demons. The problem is that we've trained our senses, the church has trained us to recognize the demonic more than the presence of God. There's a whole host of angels who wants to work with you in this kingdom. There's a whole supernatural dynamic of power that releases this kingdom. And in the tension of, of that should be an expectation of increase, not decrease. Amen? Amen. To expect God to move. That's how we build church. Listen, do you know that when John has his revelation, he doesn't write to people seven people in the churches of Revelation, he writes to seven angels. Who writes a letter to angels? <laughs> I'm just simply saying there's a lot greater reality than we could ever anticipate around the angelic. And we have reduced the angelic to maybe if we're in real trouble, God will send one to help us. <laughs> no, I engage with the angelic. I don't worship the angelic. That would be dumb. But even John the Revelator got confused because angels carry the sense of the presence of Jesus so amazing. Just thought I'd throw that out. Anyway. <laughs> the last thing I want to just quickly say and then we'll, we'll pray for some people is that the reality of the kingdom is not expressed in what you do but in your posture. You see, Jesus says something quite interesting here. He says, we're going to let the weed and the wheat grow together. And the reason he says that is because he understands that weed, when it is fully grown, stands tall, but it has an empty head with no reproductive seed in it. But wheat, when it is fully grown, is bowed low, right over, with lots of reproductive seed in it. And so the way that he'll know the difference is about the posture, not the position. And in the kingdom, our posture has to be one of servanthood. (laughs) And it's out of our humility and service. Notice I'm not saying slavery, because there's a difference between being a servant and being a slave. I'm a son who is a servant. I'm a son whose posture is servanthood. And when you live from the place of servanthood, the kingdom becomes the easiest thing to give away. (laughs) And when you live from the place of servanthood, church does not become a meeting that you gather to. It becomes a reality that you invite people into. A community of great power, a community that is seen kingdom extend. And this then is the foundation of how we should be building church. It's not about whether your home group has got more people than the one down the road. 
It's about the influence that you get to serve with. And the reason why I'm laying this foundation is because we're going to unpack some of this over the next few sessions. But it's imperative that you change the way you think about your Christian life. That you are not saved waiting for the great escape. (laughs) (laughs) But you're saved to be a conduit of heaven on earth. Who has never seen a miracle happen through their own hands? Lift up your hands. A healing or whatever it is. Put up your hands. I want to encourage you. This is the week God wants to surprise you. This is the week where if you would just simply step up. People say to me, So, what's the key to dramatic healing? Praying for people who are dramatically sick? (laughs) Very simple. Very simple. This is a supernatural community. It's not just a nice church that meets together because we, we, we like each other and like Jesus. No, no, this is a kingdom that is meant to take Solihull by storm. Yeah. It's meant to change everything. It's meant to impact government. It's meant to impact health. It's meant to impact schools. It's meant to impact everything. Because that's the kingdom. Amen.